Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. James Sweeney with us with Credit Suisse, his wonderful call a number of years ago, Fear Not of Deflation. He joins us now, the chief economist for Credit Suisse. James Sweeney, should we fear inflation? I don't think so. I think we may get it. I think the risks of, uh, of inflation, of higher inflation down the road uh, are certainly going up with all this policy. Uh, but I'm not sure there's anything really to fear there. Well, there's not the fear there, but then there's a rate of change in Newtonian analysis of all this. I mean, I don't really see, I, I do see the vector of five-year, five years. I get it. It's an impulse higher inflation. But do you see a rate of change that causes concern? I don't. I, I think where the global fixed income market is leaves uh, supply and demand supportive for lower long-term yields. So I think they can go up, but I don't think they're going to go up 100 basis points. I don't think they're going to go up enough to imperil a housing recovery or anything like that. James, I assume you read the piece from Larry Summers on Friday into the weekend and this huge debate everybody's having right now. Can you weigh in on that just a little bit more for us, James, your take and where you sit on this discussion right now? Well, I mean, I've been looking for the package to come down from 1.9 trillion. Now, 1.9 is is very large. Um, so, you know, this is uh, th- this is this is stimulative relief. It's it's stimulus and it's relief. <laughs> and I, I think when we look ahead to next year. I I think it is realistic to get back to full employment in in 2022. Uh, we're going to have a little overshoot in inflation in the coming months. It is possible that we have inflation running above two percent, maybe a decent amount above two percent. For the next 12 months, um, we'll take it. I mean, these are these are good things. Um, so, I, I think yes, uh, we may get overheated. We may get very volatile markets. We may get uh, a cyclical whipshaw in the economy. Um, so you're you're putting more cyclicality into growth. So there's a lot of volatility in a bill of this size. But volatility is is not you know a, a significant cost given the objectives involved here, which is really to get the economy back to full employment uh, and, and maybe to soothe some of its distributional consequences. Do you take issue with size alone, though, James, or is it the composition of it as well? Oh, composition is quite important. And, and actually, I would say I think about this as part one, because it's clear that when this gets, this gets passed, the administration is going to start focusing on a long-term stimulus bill with green energy and infrastructure and, and all that. So there's a balance between immediate stimulus, how much cash drop is in that immediate stimulus, and then what is the long-term implication, including the later package? Because I, I don't think you can think about the the results of this bill uh, and the politics of this bill without realizing what's up next. So uh, th- these are these are all big things, and and this is a major increase in in the projected growth of the economy in the in the next few years if both of these bills get through, and, and even if this one just gets through at a 1.9 trillion size or something close to it. James, let's talk a little bit more about composition, and I want to follow up on something John was talking about. He rightly identified the way that Democrats are painting the $1,400 checks as something perhaps a bit more than just relief, but also evening out that K-shaped recovery. It is a very important point. Is the Democratic Party framing this wrong? Is there a cleaner economic argument for the money to be going to lower-income families in that they will be spending it more and more quickly, whereas if you have a certain threshold, a certain cutoff that's even known, that will go directly into savings. 
Well, it's clear that this at one point nine trillion or even a little bit below that, this is going to be enough money to boost savings, to boost current spending, to help balance sheets and to boost future spending when we finally get into a proper services recovery. I think the distribution of this, especially with the payments, is going to be a very large improvement in the short term prospects of, of people with you know, the, the bottom half of the income distribution. Uh, how they emphasize that, I, I think that's a political question. They're just trying to get it passed. I think the beneficiaries of those checks are, are going to, they don't care about you know, the, the political operations and how they get it through. They just want to get it through. They want to get this check and they want to get through this pandemic uh, and, and get on to normal life again later this year. James, do you agree with what Janet Yellen was saying over the weekend on Meet the Press when she was saying that if they pass this bill, we could get to full employment by perhaps uh, next year? I think we can easily get to 5% unemployment by the end of this year with this bill. And I think late next year, 4% is, is within reach. I think full employment is around 4%. So I think it's a reasonable thing for her to say, yes. And like I said, I think that next fiscal bill is going to be right around the corner. I think in three months, we're going to be talking about green energy and, and infrastructure. So this is this is really just the starts. The question then is how do financial markets start to move in response to all that? Do we see meaningfully higher interest rates, inflation, et cetera? So this this really is changing the the, the macro outlook very substantially. James, what is the inflation partition? Services and goods, what's that dynamic right now? What do you foresee it to be in the next twelve months? Sure. Well, right now we've had we've had a larger jump in goods inflation than services inflation because for the obvious reason that uh, that goods spending have has been very strong. Services spending remains lackluster due to the pandemic. We've all heard about this base effect coming in in the next few months. So core inflation, inflation measures really around the world are going to be going up into June. But actually, it, it's going to be more pronounced at this uh, goods versus services level. Goods inflation, non-services inflation is really going to jump. PPI inflation measures looking at intermediate goods things like that are going to really jump in in the next few months as we get into the end of the year maybe there's going to be shortages of of restaurant tables and and flights and then you can actually get some services inflation but we need a pandemic recovery uh, for that relative price shock to start to switch around james awesome to catch up as always good to see you buddy james sweeney there credit suisse chief economist David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research, and we're thrilled he could join us today. David, when you partition our present inflation and our expectations of inflation, what do you see? Well, look, what we see is a, um, you know, the break-even levels uh, in the 10-year Treasury, uh, you know, getting as high, uh, you know, as they were practically, uh, you know, getting to the peak of the last cycle. So, uh, you know, we're already well above 2%. Uh, and the market is um, pricing in, you know, not just a significant uh, economic recovery, but alongside that, a closing of the output gap earlier than expected. And uh, these inflation expectations, I mean, they've caught me by surprise how quickly the market is priced in an inflation cycle so quickly. Uh, I think it's way overdone. Um, but, you know, the big question isn't so much the $1.9 trillion. Right. It's really ultimately how much of that $1.9 trillion uh, filters through into the economy. And, and I, I would have thought, actually, that the markets would have recognized uh, the survey that the New York Fed did uh, a little while ago 
following the CARES Act uh, that found that um, only 29% of that stimulus found its way into the economy. You know, the rest went into savings, I guess you could say, in the Bitcoin, in the GameStop, in the stock market. Yes, That's I part did. Of savings. And the rest went into uh, debt pay down. Like, I, what I can't correlate is this in terms of the market mindset. How are we going to get inflation as the household sector is deleveraging, unless the market thinks it's temporary? Well, David, like household, household, household demand for bank credit is running negative 3% year over year. Negative 3 okay, Households but, are paying David, down debt, I, and people I, think that's going to be inflationary. You're taking a different tack. Can you buy bill notes and bonds today? Can you buy today for price up, yield lower? Well, I, I think we're heading into a very attractive buying opportunity uh, at the long end of the curve. I mean, if you're bullish on bonds, uh, I'd be heading towards the 30-year, which, as you said, uh, touched 2% today. Uh, the bottom line here is that the Fed is not going to be tightening policy for a long period of time, so there's no risk that the cost of carry is going to go up. The big debate is really uh, is about inflation. Um, but you've got a market right now that's priced for inflation heading to the peak we had the last cycle, cornflation. And yep. I think that's going to still be very difficult to achieve, even with the fiscal stimulus. David, let's build on this. When we're talking about inflation, as you correctly point out, we're talking about market-based inflation expectations. How useful are they, David? How useful have they ever been, given where we are right now? How do you move 10-year inflation expectations based on what's happened in the last couple of weeks? Well, look, uh, the biggest correlation between the break-evens is with the CRB index. Uh, and, um, of course, that's real-time data. What people don't see is that the biggest component of the CPI and core CPI is rent. And vacancy rates are going up, and rental inflation is melting, and that's going to be dominating. Um, but the rental data don't come out as quickly on your Bloomberg uh, uh, terminal as the CRB index. And we have a commodity boom going on. Uh, but we had we had four or five of these commodity cycles just in the previous 10 years. And that cycle from 09 to 2019, we had four or five incredible, they look like sine waves. And people get caught offside because they believe, oh, we're going to get inflations around the corner. Uh, and then what was the dominant feature of the last cycle? Did we get cyclical inflation? Yes, we got some of it. But the bigger picture is that from 09 to 2019, despite all the gargantuan fiscal stimulus we had and all the monetary stimulus we had, and a, and a quintupling of the stock market, uh, the peak in core inflation last cycle was 2.4%. To me, the big picture is that you've got to go back a century to find that find the last time core inflation peaked at such a low level. And we're getting to the break-evens, heading back to that right now. So I think that's a great buying opportunity. The market right now is pricing in peak core inflation from the last cycle when the unemployment rate was 3.5%, not 6.3%. So to me, this is a great opportunity to get back into the long end of the curve. David, to build on what John was talking about, there's a difference between inflation expectations and actual belief in inflation that's being borne out throughout markets. How consistent is the reflation trade throughout all asset classes, or is it mostly tied to break-evens and a specific subset of the market? Well, look, I think that um, you're seeing it across, you know, a broad array of, um, of asset classes. Uh, I mean, you've got the reflation, inflation trade in small cap stocks. You're seeing it in commodities. You're seeing it in how value has outperformed growth for the better part of the past few months. Uh, so it's not just in the bond market. Um, the inflation expectations, and I've, I've only been fielding calls now uh, in the past couple of weeks uh, over whether 
the inflation story uh, is going to be the real story. Uh, I think it's, uh, to, me it's a, to me, it's a head fake. I think that the surprise will be that the inflation doesn't come back as quickly as people think, but it's really endemic across almost every asset class you're seeing right now. Really looking forward to getting you back, David. Always enjoy catching up. Thanks for being with us this morning. David Rosenberg there of Rosenberg Research. Amrita Sen is a joy to speak to with energy aspects. What she does better maybe than anybody out there is the elasticity, the responsiveness of supply and demand worldwide. She joins us uh, this morning. Amrita Sen, I think you nail it with demand elasticity being an absolute mystery. How much of a mystery is it right now? Oh, it continues to be a mystery. I don't think COVID has really helped the situation because, you know, even when you had 90% of the of world's manufacturing down or industrial production shut in, this was around March, April last year, oil demand only fell by 20%. It does show you how inelastic oil demand is. Right now, globally, oil demand is down about 5 million barrels per day year on year. Um, which, again, given the scale of relative lockdowns that we're still talking about, even in places like China, it is doing very, very well. I think the cold weather has also really helped. We've seen LNG prices uh, in Asia hit record highs, and as a result, a lot of power plants there have switched to liquids. So fuel oil, LPG, that's been boosting oil as well. And now, of course, in Europe and U.S., you've also had a cold blast. So there's definitely support for heating fuels. Uh, that's potentially masking some of the weakness elsewhere. Like, you know, you guys just talked about airlines. Jet fuel demand isn't recovering anytime soon. But I do think the colder weather has helped at least mask part of that weakness. That's the demand side. Then there's also the supply side, the idea that OPEC Plus has maintained certain output cuts and that shale producers in the United States are actually producing almost a fifth less oil than they were, uh, say, a year ago or, uh, you know, ahead of the pandemic. How high do oil prices get before all of that supply starts coming uh, flooding online? I think that's the million dollar question right now. I think you're exactly right. Supply has been a very critical factor. And I think full marks to OPEC for how they've handled the market. Uh, this is very much their achievement. And, and they will take a lot of credit for this. Saudi Arabia in particular coming in with that million barrels per day of voluntary cuts. Uh, they will start bringing that back from April onwards. But to your point, shale production, we don't think is going to go back to the you know, 2019, the pre-COVID <coughs> levels anytime soon, if ever, because they are more focused on disability. Uh, or like shareholder returns right now. I think in terms of oil prices, part of the problem is that the market can see this rebound in demand coming and supplies remaining tight, exactly what we're talking about right now. But we aren't really going to see the actual demand recovery till Q2, potentially even the second half of the year. But this is a futures market. We always discount stuff that's going to happen in the future now. That's why prices are rallying right now. Should prices today be $60? No, but we're trading April futures. And yes, things will sequentially get better. Remember, we've also got a very, very like easy monetary policy, so much liquidity in the system. We've always called for $80 plus oil in 2022. Maybe that is $100 now, given how much liquidity there is in the system. I wouldn't rule that out. We've been talking, Amrita, this whole program about how people are doubling down on this reflation trade, the recovery trade. And you do have some naysayers, David Rosenberg among them, and also Mike Muller of uh, VTOL, of the Asian operations. And he said over the weekend, the market is getting ahead of itself when it talks about oil prices going much higher from here. Do you agree? I do think if you look at 
prompt fundamentals. Yes, the market has gotten ahead of itself because right now demand is still relatively weak. It is going to get better. But again, this is a reflation trade. People are not going to wait for the event to happen to position. Uh, why not position now if, you know, if airlines will reopen whenever that is? If not Q2, it will be Q3 or Q4. And I think that is part of the problem. You've seen this across asset classes, right, that the reflation trade, to your point, is very much in vogue. Um, however, above $60, there will be headwinds from supply. Yes, U.S. production may not go back to 2019 levels, but it will start to rise. OPEC compliance might start to slip a little bit as well. So, yes, I, can, I, I don't think this is going to be a straight line higher. We are also very cautious around the prompt. There's still a lot of unsold barrels in West Africa, for instance. Yeah. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the second half of the year does look much, much uh, healthier in terms of demand. Set the scene. 80 to $100 crude next year, second year of the Biden presidency. Tom Keane, it was Neil Dutter of Renaissance Macro last week who I think nailed it. Park the politics. Get rid of the politics when you start to make market calls. Well, because if you made a market call based on the politics, you wouldn't be at 80 to 100 yeah. on crude. I mean, I'm reading, I mean, frame this out. There's a trading range 70 to 80. No one believes in that. And then, as John mentions, there's a migration back to 100. No one believes in that. How likely is it? Look, that's an outside chance. I don't think the 100 is a base case at all. For us, the base case has always been around $80 next year for the okay. simple reason that a, demand is going to go back to pre-COVID levels. B, we've even got Iran coming back. We've just put out a note saying Iranian production will probably come back by more in the second half of the year. We've always been very clear on the timeline that it's not going to come back before June. Uh, but with the Biden presidency or administration rather engaging or likely to engage with Iran, volumes will start to come back. But then once Iran is back, there's very little spare capacity in the system. OPEC will continue to bring oil back to the market. But non-OPEC supplies, which nobody talks about, there's no investment. Everybody is going after net zero. Everybody wants to be in the green or has to be guided by the green agenda. If there's no investment in the upstream, where is the marginal mm. barrel of supply going to come from once OPEC has exhausted whatever it can bring on to meet the increase in demand? That's the question for next year. Amrita, always great to catch up. Come back soon. Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects there on the crude market. <clears throat> Let's go to serious economic matters. Ethan Harris with Bank of America running all of their economic research. Ethan, I like how you and Michelle Meyer do the math. 4% of GDP plus 9% of GDP is a Larry Summers impulse of 13% of GDP. Is that too much? Well, it, it's unprecedented. I mean, the, if you take the two uh, packages together, the one passed in December and the one on the table now, it's as big as what we did last spring when the economy was in free fall, uh, when the unemployment rate was 14.3%. Now the unemployment rate's only 6.3%. Just these two packages, not including all the stuff they did last year, just these two packages are much more than double what the U.S. did in 2000, the 2009 recession. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I've described this as clients as it's like the big gulp at 7-Eleven, you know, that 30-ounce bucket. I wouldn't of know about that. Soda. Well, this is like drinking two of those. 
Okay, well, Ethan, you know, on the big gulp, I, I, I look at the other debate, which is an open and closed economy, and that some of the economic templates of the past are much more closed economies that are not international. How does that fiscal stimulus affect America if we are much more an open economy now? Well, I mean, when you put that kind of demand stimulus into the economy, and by the way, it's not going to show up right away. It's going to show up when we reopen the service sector and all the money that people have been holding in their bank accounts uh, goes out into spending. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it's going to leak overseas in terms of uh, stronger trade. Um, it's going to provide a modest boost to global growth. But, you know, we still are a relatively closed economy. It's going to be very service-focused spending. All the stuff that we've been unable to buy uh, for a year now, uh, that will boom. Uh, and that's mainly domestic spending. So it's it's going to spill over, but most of it's going to stay at home. Ethan, how much is 2009 a correct comparison that we should be looking at, both in terms of the of the nature of the shock as well as how quickly the economy accelerated afterwards? In other words, a lot of people said we didn't move quickly enough, and that's why the recovery took so long. This time, yeah. we want to fix that mistake. What's your take? Well, I think that, that it's correct that there wasn't enough fiscal stimulus in 2009, and, and we knew it at the time. We knew that uh, 6% of GDP stimulus uh, was inadequate given how massive the recession was. And the other thing we knew is that they gave up too early. Um, they stopped doing additional fiscal stimulus when the unemployment rate was still over 9%, and there was no follow-through at all. Uh, but I think people are looking back at that and, and not taking the lesson right. We're not waiting. We're not sitting here at 9% unemployment. We're down to 6.3. And we haven't even felt the effects of the latest package. So this is um, a, a very strong reaction to what was a policy mistake back in, in 2009. The other thing I would point out is in 2009, one reason you had such a crummy recovery was because you had a banking and real estate crisis. And we know that those crises always produce weak recoveries. There's a lot of economic historians have written about this. This is different. We don't have a banking real estate crisis. We have a healthy banking and real estate sector. So once the economy gets going, you're going to have a more normal recovery with or without the stimulus. So the 2009 analogy sounds great as a talking point, but when you look at the details of it, it's hard to justify, you know, the, the, it seems like an overreaction to that historic experience. So are you saying, Ethan, that you think that the high asset prices that the Fed is allowing to continue actually help them achieve their goal of lower employment and higher inflation? Well, I mean, you know, you've got both the Fed and fiscal authorities with their with pedal to the metal. It's like you've got two accelerators and no brake. Um, so that's going to be uh, very stimulus to cap stimulus to, to capital markets. Um, I think the danger here is not in the immediate the immediate uh, future, but more, you know, at what point do we kind of say, okay, now we need to apply some braking here. We we are starting to get a little bit of inflation in the system. Um, how do the markets adapt? Yeah, if the Fed starts hiking. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it makes more sense to go slower, I think. Ethan, over the last year, there's been a huge conversation about how well the Treasury is working with the central bank in the UK, in Europe, in the United States as well. But there's some tension there, too. The objective of the Federal Reserve has been to divorce asset prices from fundamentals. They've been successful. That was a policy objective to boost asset prices. And we know what that's at the expense of. 
That's at tackling wealth inequality. Wealth inequality now is a target of the Treasury. How do you track that? And how do they execute? How are you thinking about that issue at the moment, Ethan? Well, I think that I think uh, tackling inequality is an extremely important, and and uh, I, you know, I think it's a it's a very important policy objective. The question is, how do you do it, right? I mean, you you address it through education, uh, through um, income distribution changes, you know, progressive tax system. Um, you know, those are the areas where you can affect uh, performance at the low end without overheating the economy. I don't think you address inequality by creating a huge boom that eventually creates inflation. I think that that's not a lasting solution. The solution has to be education and uh, redistributive uh, tax policies. And we all can agree or disagree on that from a political point of view, but those are the tools for the task, not not massive monetary and fiscal stimulus. So, Ethan, from your perspective, then, it sounds like that you would be in the camp of Larry Summers on the composition of this program that's been put together down in D.C. Yeah, I agree that they've, they're, they're pushing a little too hard here. I think that, the, um, um, I think that we need – I'd love to see what the economy looks like two quarters from now when we're reopened and people have been vaccinated, uh, service sectors coming back. Um, and then you can figure out whether you've really done enough or not. Um, it doesn't mean we don't need any fiscal stimulus. We need to address the, the most uh, hurt parts of the economy. But uh, giving stimulus dollars to people who are doing well only goes into bank accounts and, also, and comes out the other end when the economy recovers. What is your GDP call 12 months forward? I've really lost sight of it, Ethan. I, it, it's become well, such I mean, a so, blur. Right. So we've got growth this year of 6%. Um, the Bloomberg consensus is 4.1 right now. So we think consensus has got a lot of catching up to do. And then we've got 4.5% growth next year. But those that's based on um, our assumption that only half of the 1.9 trillion would actually be enacted. Um, if the whole thing gets enacted, we're gonna have to revisit those numbers. Um, and by the way, that's the fastest growth um, since uh, 1984, coming out of that massive 1982 recession. So we've got a very strong growth uh, coming out of this, this recession. Ethan, wonderful to catch up. Stay close. Ethan Harris there of Bank of America. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.